Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode number 300 is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Sweet Spot is an app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences, whether you're documenting a recent road trip, a recent trip to South America, Asia, Australia, Europe, you name it. Sweet Spot is how you keep track of what you did and how you share it with your friends and family and whoever else. You can keep track of your favorite restaurants, bars. You can share a list of your city's essential monuments and museums. Uh, this thing is built for you. It's perfect. You can use the app to follow friends and family. You can use it to follow your favorite actors, musicians, artists, whoever. And then when building your own curations, you can pull in photos from Instagram and Facebook. You can pull in locations from Google Maps and then use tags and text to tell a story. You can then share these curations uh, to Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Google Plus, you name it. And uh, Sweet Spot is a little different from other apps in that it wants you uh, to be thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Oh, and did I mention it's free? It doesn't cost anything. You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now over at the App Store. Go do that. I suggest it. It's an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is casually unfolding. This is now officially three years old. Hello out there. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles for this, the 300th episode of Other People. And uh, here to help me celebrate the occasion is my guest, Amy Bender. It's wonderful to have her here on the program. Uh, it's a thrill. She, uh, she, of course, is the acclaimed best-selling author of several books, including The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, Willful Creatures, An Invisible Sign of My Own, uh, the Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, and most recently, The Color Master. So uh, Amy and I are going to be talking momentarily. Otherwise, you know, like what to say? 300 episodes. 300 episodes later. Here we are. Uh, it's hard to believe. And I remain curious and possibly even a bit concerned about the people out there who have listened to all 300 episodes. And I'm also grateful, <laughs> but concerned. Uh, what is that experience like? 
I guess I've listened to them in a manner of speaking. But what is it like for somebody who doesn't really know me? Uh, how do you feel? Are you terrified? Is your will to live rapidly dwindling? Are you catatonic in the fetal position on the floor? Let me know. Uh, email me. Letters at otherppl.com. So really, all I want to say at episode 300 is thank you uh, to everybody who listens. It's uh, It seems like a good moment to do such things. I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you guys listening to this show. I appreciate the kind letters uh, that I receive and uh, even the not-so-kind ones. I don't know what that was. Did you hear that sound? I'm going to leave it in. <laughs> I think my dog just attacked something in the hallway. So I appreciate it. I appreciate the tweets. I appreciate the support, and I'm especially grateful to everyone out there uh, you know, who's uh, gone and gotten the Other People app, the official app of this program, which is free. And I appreciate those of you who have signed up for Premium, which is how you stream all the episodes, and uh, it's how you support the show. That means a lot to me, and uh, frankly, it's what allows this program to continue. So uh, you have my gratitude. Uh, what else? How much longer is it going to go? I honestly couldn't tell you. And uh, what I can tell you is that I, I like doing it. I've said this before. It continues to be fun for me. Uh, you know, and podcasting, even in the time that I've been doing this program, which is now three years, you know, podcasting has really exploded in terms of content, in terms of, uh, the amount of content, the volume. And, uh, you know, this seems similar to the way that other forms of media have exploded and fragmented in the digital realm. You know, there's like millions of podcasts out there and new ones, uh, you know, are created every day. They spread up like weeds. And uh, specifically in the literary realm, I feel like this uh, particular niche has uh, grown a great deal since this program began, and I'm happy about that. And uh, it's also inevitable, I think. And so, you know, I think uh, I think that the way to be is to embrace it. And as much as I like to mock podcasting, you know, I often refer to it as the world's most desperate art form. The truth is that I think it's a it's a really cool medium. And I'm, I'm proud of the body of work that uh, I'm putting together here with the help of my guests. And, uh, and of course, uh, it, it, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't mean very much if nobody was listening. So, again, uh, many thanks to all of, uh, all of you listeners out there for tuning in and for spreading the word and for supporting this program. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest once again is Amy Bender. Uh, what a perfect author to have here for number 300. She uh, is enormously talented and her stories and novels have uh, real magic in them. They're like magic and gravity. It's a rare combination. And I'm just delighted to have had the chance to talk with her a little bit. So uh, let's get going. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is the wonderful Amy Bender. I'm in Los Angeles, and I live near um, LACMA, the L.A. County Museum of Art. So that part of Los Angeles is fairly central. And I'm in my bedroom, which is a mess, but the bed is made, which is a triumph. Poorly made, but made. But you've got young children. I should say, too, we're not that far away from each other. I feel kind of bad that, uh, like, we're not doing this in person. But you have young children, busy life. Um, yes, but where are you? I I'm mean, like, can I'm I ask like, that? Yeah, like I'm like Hollywood, West Hollywood. Okay, yeah. Yeah, LA, so very so. close. Um, same weather pattern. Yes. So. Yes. Um, yes, I have young children. I have two, a pair of twins who are just over a year. Okay. So I feel like this comes up on this, uh, on this show every once and again. And it's a good question to ask because I think a lot of writers out there um, are either up against it or could be down the line. But in terms of getting creative work done, mm. um, were you worried about that in terms of having children? Have, like, were you thinking to yourself, oh, my God, there goes my routine? Or were you ready to kind of blow it up? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well put to say, was I ready to blow it up? Because I think, um, if, I mean, I had them late. Um, I'm old on the mom spectrum. And so had it been earlier, I think it would have been a lot scarier. Um, but I started a kind of writing routine in 95, which is almost 20 years ago at this point, which is startling to me. But at that point, I felt like, although I've been very um, extremely helped by having a kind of routine and ritual of, of writing a couple hours in the morning, and that had been bad, and that had every book I've written has come from that. It's been a crucial, crucial factor. But it kind of felt exciting for one, I really wanted to have kids, so right. I was kind of willing to, to blow it up and see what would happen. But also felt a little exciting to see, you know, what happens if this um, foundational piece of my writing process is shaken up. And, like, for example, the, my current setup is I'm writing 10 minutes a day, which is a lot less than two hours. Um, and one evening, I'll have like an hour. So it's a lot less, but but I've been really interested to see how writing 10 minutes a day feels extremely different than not writing. So how does it feel? I mean, what, 10 minutes a day, are you getting, st- how many words are you getting down? Like a sentence? Uh, sometimes a sentence, sometimes a page, sometimes nothing. I mean, it's, sometimes I'm just looking over what the sentence I wrote yesterday and maybe adding one or maybe adding five or nothing. But it's, it's so much about, um, like a gesture towards the imagination or the unconscious or whatever you want to call that place that writing comes from to say, like, it matters to me to set aside sometime, even if it's so small that it seems absurd, uh, work gets done that would not get done otherwise. So it's by the end of the week, I have a little bit. And then from that little bit, the next week I can get a little bit more. So I wrote a 10 page story in the 10 minutes a day over the last maybe six weeks. 
So that was really exciting. Well, hey, that's better than a lot of people, you know? <laughs> it felt really wonderful. It was really like, um, yeah, it just, it felt, it felt, uh, very comforting. And I, I'm a big believer in the writing exercise. And with 10 minutes, actually, you can do a writing exercise and, and often the writing exercise uh, frees up um, speed. You know, there's something about getting a, a prompt outside of what you're expecting that that can make me write pretty quick. So it's like I could get uh, 250 words or something uh, in 10 minutes. So what do you mean by a prompt? Like, do you mean just like, here's 10 minutes and that's the prompt? Or do you give yourself some sort of like, you know, uh hypothesis or you know what I'm saying? Like a, a sentence that you respond to or something. Yeah. It's more like it's some kind of sentence or some kind of outside, um, stimulation of idea. So like, for example, I had gotten an email from this journal conjunctions cause I had published there before. I really liked them. They're kind of experimental. I think they do really cool stuff. So they had sent this email, I think to previous contributors saying, Hey, we're doing an issue on writing a something that relates to books or writing or like a Borges like strain, you know, anything that you want to talk about that a story that has to do with writing in some way, which of course can be a horrible kind of story, but I also think can be a really interesting story. So I was kind of chewing on that. And then I would sit there and I would say, what, you know, what kind of book could I write about? You know, what kind of strange book could be found or what could be a book? And so that was basically the thing I was working with. And I, I did a lot of beginnings, which is kind of also my pattern is to have maybe 10 beginnings for one that goes somewhere. Um, but it was really helpful to have that focus because if I did not, I would have uh, just spun my wheels sitting there. Are you, are you a person who can, I mean, do you have good concentration? Medium. No, not particularly good. It, it varies. At moments, I've had really good concentration and I'm also very scattered and I'll jump around a lot. I'm not, you know... I'm not sure. I've been thinking about this too. I'm not sure concentration is always the crucial component with writing because if you're too concentrated, you are quite alert. And I'm not sure alertness helps writing. What what do you mean? (laughs) I think there's something about being a little spacey that allows a certain part of the mind to go places it might not go if one was more focused. So if I think of concentration as connected to focus and a kind of alertness and presence, I think that has a place at a certain time in the writing process that's crucial, especially with a novel and with a story. But it's more of a a revision skill. And I think in generating work, yeah, in generating work, I almost think you have to be not looking directly at what you're doing to let things happen that – are below your awareness. Okay. So this is, this is getting at uh, like a bunch of th- things that I think about when I think about your work and also questions that I kind of had in my mind to ask you, because, um, I, I feel like w- there's a lot of play, uh, in your work. Like I, when I read some writers, it's like, God, this must've been grueling to write. And you can kind of mm-hmm. like, you can kind of like feel the blood <laughs> on the page. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it was easy for you to, to write your books. Cause I know anybody who writes books, you know, goes through it, but you do seem to, there seems to be like real fun. There seems to be like Good. play and like, yeah. is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I deeply believe in that as being a extremely useful place to write from. And 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 I think when I am having fun, it feels like the writing has a lot more um, life to it, a lot more energy, a lot. It, it moves quicker. It goes places I don't expect. It's just that there's a lot of drudgery to find the moment or the 10 minutes or the hour of play. Like, it's not like I'm always able to sit there in that space. Right. 
And you're not like sitting there like writing with a smile on your face, even when you are having fun. Or maybe you No. <laughs> no. And sometimes it's funny and I don't know it's funny until later and I look at it and I think, oh, that was funny. But at the moment, I'm just kind of in it and kind of not in it, you know, in that sort of half distracted, half focused place. And, and that's, but, but I think I, I am enjoying seeing where it's going. So right. There's no smile on my face, but I'm connected to it in some way. Okay. And then uh, the other thing that you mentioned was like, you know, this, this state of mind that you think is conducive to uh, the creative act, especially like in the initial phases of writing, like the act of yeah. the real act of creation, as opposed to the revision process where you're sort of working from something. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, was, I was reading, I mean, you know, your twins, notwithstanding now that your schedule has changed and you're, you're doing these like micro sessions, <laughs> right. um, but you know, you, you, you were a morning writer for a long time. Long time. And that, um, you know, I think what it's part of like life design, but it's also that, you know, it bumps right up against waking up and like writing, exactly. writing. I know there are a lot of writers who believe in this, that if you uh, sit down to write as close to the dreaming state as possible, that you're more likely to hit the state of mind you were describing earlier. Yeah, I completely buy it because you're you're accessing the same part of you that is, you know, putting forward dreams and you can shape that stuff later. But how do you get to those images and those feelings that, that might get inhibited later in the day? Like I really will feel like once I'm out in the day and for example, talking to you, talking to other people um, in a kind of more social self, it's a lot harder to sit down and get any writing done, like enormously harder. But there's something about that kind of quiet, sleepy, more introverted space that feels, um, yeah, a lot more productive. Can you get it late at night? I can't because I just get tired. I mean, I've always kind of been like that. But I, I can really see, I know Dave Eggers talked in some interview or maybe even in Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, how he wrote a lot of the book between 2 and 4 a.m. when everyone was asleep. And I get it. I get it abstractly, but I just couldn't do it. Right. And then um, all this talk, I mean, all this talk about uh, the unconscious and the dream state and, and having this kind of nuanced awareness of... Um, you know, uh, your brain and your consciousness in terms of how it relates to your creativity begs questions about your uh, parents and uh, I think your, <laughs> your dad in particular. I mean, I've been doing my research. Your father's a, a psychoanalyst and your mother is a dancer and a dance instructor, correct? Yes. Yeah. And choreographer. Yeah. Okay. So, and these things, and you are kind of a combination of the two? Yeah. I always kind of thought that that a psychoanalyst who's dealing with language as the way to access the emotional life of a person and a dancer and choreographer who's dealing with creativity, but it's totally nonverbal. I felt like they would pop out writers. And I mean, I have two sisters and they both write as well. So really, it seems true. Yeah. Professional. Yeah. One, yeah. One fiction and one nonfiction. Yeah. My God. I know. Well, see, that's the thing though. I can, I can kind of see like your writing process is a form of like literary dance. (laughs) That's, I mean, it sort of feels like that. And like, this is also making me self-conscious because like, A, I'm a terrible dancer. B, <laughs> I haven't written for like right after waking up in too long, you know, like I need to get back yeah. to that. I get, I let myself get, you know, too deep into the day when, um, I've had all these other things intrude and then I try to sit down and access it. And, um, you, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's like an uninhibited thing that dancers have that I really wish I had, but I don't think, I don't know if you can manufacture that. Do you think you can? 
Well, I mean, it's interesting because dance, I taught a class with my mom once with the UCLA Extension does the sort of extended writer's ed. And so we, we co-taught a class that was called Movement and Metaphor that was a writing dance class. And I thought it would be kind of a no-brainer that the two would go well together. But they were so different. Like, I don't think I ever felt as clearly the distinction between uh, my work and my mom's work because I always felt like they were kind of of a piece. And in fact, it was like, oh, my God, it's so different because everyone would sit at their desk and do their little writing thing. And then she would be like, stand up and we would move around the room. And she would be I remember very distinctly this moment when she said, now, touch someone's shoulder. And I felt like my whole body felt shocked by even the suggestion because it feels like writers don't touch each other. Yeah, don't touch me. <laughs> I just got the shivers. I just got the shivers thinking about it. It just seems suddenly, yeah, like dance comes from this primal pre-verbal place it's very different and i felt like the creativity that gets accessed is actually kind of different than the one that you're using words to shape something um well and these so, people, and these people who are really great physically like be they dancers or athletes like there's often a very um there, there's often uh it's often very difficult for them to articulate how they do what they do yeah no i think that's very true sorry that's a cat um Loud cat. Yes. No, I mean, I think that's true, though. I mean, and this is where the exceptions become really interesting. I mean, now that I've kind of thought about things and done various interviews and blah, blah, I feel more cat sounds. I feel more able to talk about writing. But initially, I also like I don't know that writers are necessarily articulate either, because I think the process of making a story is so different than talking about the story. Or, you know, let's say the pressure when you're at a party and someone asks you what you're working on. Right. It always feels horrible, it's the right? Worst, it's to the, try wor to the worst question ever. It is. It's like it's like your heart sinks, and then you have to kind of be sort of gently rude. Like I'd never talk about that or say it in some way that's acceptable to the conversation because it's just going to sink the dialogue. Well, but the, like, the, I, this is the thing, though, is that like it's it's not even about being gently rude. It's like somebody asks you that, they ask you. Like you didn't ask them yeah. to ask you. They asked you what your book's about, and then you make a good faith effort to explain it to them. And they almost always like just like become incredibly bored and like distracted, <laughs> like right? And then you right. feel, you feel like an asshole for even like you know making the attempt, or at least that's been my experience. No, exactly. They sort of tune out. I think it's I think a book explained often is boring. Right. You know, it's sort of like reading the back of a book is usually boring. You try to you know like it's just not the same as sitting and reading the first page. You're not going to recite the first page. Um, so I abide by the Flannery O'Connor thing, which is that you're not even supposed to really be able to say what it's about, which I found so relieving. When so I do you it. have like a do you have like a cue card speech that you give people when they ask you? I mean, I just say I don't really talk about it because I, you know, it's not I'm not able to articulate that very well. You know, I self-deprecate. That seems to work pretty well. It's like it's me. I just can't really do it that well, which is true. But I also feel like I don't know that. A writer should. Yeah, I used to. I used to like revert, and this is maybe like a little bit mean spirited, but I used to come up with like really dark, like uh, like ex like extremely dark like one liners about what the book was about. Like, oh, that's smart. <laughs> See, that's like, like what. And the people, I you don't remember? Know, like, it, like what's it about? It'd be like, oh, it's about the death of hope, or you know, just something silly. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, I'm gonna go get celery yeah, in the, right. at the buffet. Yeah, exactly. Bye. Just something to just shut it down. And, <laughs> but there's also something maybe self-deprecating in that because I would let on that I was kidding, you know. Right. No. Exactly. Exactly. And it changes the subject a little bit, you know. So okay. So I'm not gonna ask you what you're working on, obviously, but uh, I am gonna ask you like where you're from. Uh, are you from Los Angeles? I'm from Los Angeles, but I'm from the West Side, so more kind of what I think of suburban LA. You know, it was hard to find. It was like 
20 minutes to walk to a store. You know, very pretty and nice, but a different feeling. Like, now, it feels important to me now to be somewhere that feels more city-like. Yeah. So it's like Santa Monica? Yeah, kind of Santa Monica-Brentwood border. Okay. Okay. And then, um, and you, and we already mentioned, like, your dad was a shrink. Your mom's a dance instructor. Um, like, did you feel, like, at a remove from the the Hollywood part of Los Angeles? Yeah, good question. And entirely. Yeah. And that was very helpful living here. I mean, I think the people that are involved in it and enjoy it like it, but, but, um, I mean, it's, it can be such a lens to, through which to see the city that, you know, I mean, I, it's just one part of the city. And I think I knew from, from the get go that there was a lot else going on in the city and, um, and that my parents would have their friends over and it would be these sort of LA psychoanalysts and it would be, um, the dance community. And that felt completely different. So, so yeah, so there wasn't, I think there was a little, I remember clearly when I was in a kind of obsession with, um, John Hughes and went to a, um, screening of pretty in pink and, um, he was in the theater and that felt very exciting. Whoa. So, so yeah, that was, and I knew what he looked like, you know, like that was part of the, the extent of my LA upbringing is that I could kind of recognize a film director. <laughs> but you didn't, you didn't have like interact like growing up, like you weren't going to school with kids who were like the sons and daughters. I mean, I, I asked this kind of selfishly because I wonder what my, I mean, my, my upbringing was in the Midwest. So yeah. if my daughter, if we raise her here, which I think we're gonna, she's yeah. going to have like a completely different experience. And I'm like, What's yeah. that, that going to be like? Did you have, like, were you thinking to yourself, oh, my God, that's, like, so-and-so's kid and, like, you know, such-and-such's, like, they're going off on their own jet or, you know, like that? I mean, there was, because I went to public schools, but my high school had some really rich kids that were kind of tangentially related. It was like, it was like, God, who was it? It was, um, who was the guy on Magnum P.I.? Tom Selleck? Tom Selleck's stepson or something, you know, like something kind of obscure like that, who was also very handsome, you know, like this sort of Hollywood tinge, but, and Tom Selleck was big in those days. It was definitely his, his era, but, but it still wasn't something that was um, registered that much to me. You know, it wasn't like going to, to Crossroads or one of these private schools where I think you saw like the actual star in your classroom. Um, But what I would say too is my dad's from the Midwest and I think that made a huge difference. So I actually think Midwestern upbringing helps the LA. Yeah. Yeah. Where's he from? Uh, He grew up in South Dakota and moved to Minneapolis and was there for college, but went to, was in a really tiny town in um, South Dakota. Wow. That's Midwest. My, my wife is from Minneapolis. So. And you're from? I'm from Wisconsin, Wisconsin and Indiana. Okay. So okay. Somehow, yeah. somehow wound up out here. So do you love L.A.? I mean, you're still here. I'm still here. I I do love it. I have some mixed feelings about it. But on the whole, I love it. And I think it's actually getting better. So I think over the last 10 years, it feels like it's kind of opened up a lot. In the in the non-Hollywood realm, like I feel like the museums have gotten better. The um, music scene, like it just feels like all the arts are kind of blooming really nicely. And, you know, like even though the transportation is still nothing compared to cities like New York, it's getting better. Like there's, there's little attempts to make it a more, um, accessible city. I just, I just want to have, like, I keep reading about, like, you know how they have these like articles about the future and like driverless cars. And like the other Mm -hmm. day I was, I was reading about these pods 
that you're just going to like summon with your phone and they're going to be oh like, they're going to run silently. They're not going to burn any fossil fuels. And wow. Like I, I sort of want that. Am, am I crazy? Yeah. You know? No, I kind of do too. And I think LA is going to be a great testing ground for that. Right. Cause it's like this point we are <laughs> pretty much a car city. So for all these new car options, I think that's going to be interesting. Well, and we can't dig a subway and it's like the city's so big in terms of landmass that like, even if you had, I mean, we do have one, but we, it can't take you everywhere. Right. Uh, and they're trying, but it's going to take like 10 years to take, do a little stretch of it. So it's like, you can do some of it. Um, I had a friend who did this wonderful thing on the gold line in Pasadena where she did a 12 days of Christmas thing for 12, that has 12 stops. So she would do an event at each stop over those days. It was like December into January. That was like this beautiful tribute to the LA Wait, <laughs> above did, rail. Was this, a, was this affiliated with anything or did she just do it out of the kindness she of her heart? A, I mean, she had a kind of a nonprofit called Smart Gals. I think she'll revive at some point. And so she would do this site site-specific theater stuff that was really fantastic and and she's had a kid recently too so it's kind of um on hold for now but i think she'll do it again because that was amazing it was amazing she can work but on the it. mta can... didn't support it like that was the other thing is she tried to get them to support it and they didn't huh. yeah. well she can work on it for like 10 minutes a day you know you can try, right. <laughs> you can try to pass that along to... it's a genius strategy I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using that. Just, I got 10 minutes. That's all I got. But, but you know I what? I think it's really interesting to see how it is, it is something. It, it's not nothing. It's yeah, not nothing. Well, it, it seems like a joke. It seems like a joke, but it's really not. No, exactly. But it also, yeah, like, it, like, it, it, what it does is it sort of it, it calls people on their bullshit. Like there's always time. You know there's always I mean? 10 minutes. There's yeah. always 10 minutes. You can get something done. And uh, if, you know, if you just make, the, make those 10 minutes and sit yourself down and get to work, you know. Yeah. I, I totally believe that. And especially with the internet, like 10 minutes is gone in a second if you're just surfing the net. So if you can not, if you can turn it off for 10 minutes and just write. There you go. Just have the blank page. So what kind of, uh, what kind of child were you like you growing up? Like you have these, uh, you know, cerebral, or at least your dad's very cerebral. Um, I'm imagining your parents are very intelligent folks. Like were you shy, outgoing, and I mean, I wouldn't say my dad is cerebral. I would say they're both very smart, but that they're also um, uh, like they're not kind of scalpel-like intellects. You know, they're really smart people who are just very kind of loving. You know, they're just is like. Your, is your dad a, like a hippie shrink? He's not a hippie shrink because he's not that generation. He's pre-baby boomer. Oh wow! So he's yeah. So he's more like old school. Um, but, but just like loves his work and loves, uh, you know, just, just, even though I didn't really understand what he did as a job for a long time, it was clear that he kind of loved what he was doing. So, so I think it's knowing that there's kind of this emotional piece to the, to the therapy realm. I think that was a key part. And but, did, did he like mold you? I mean, I, cause I think of if, if you're a, a, a psychiatrist and you have that educational background and you understand people in that way, like it has to be some kind of advantage, right? Or at least it's going to filter right. in. Like, did you ever feel to yourself like, oh my God, I'm like his little lab experiment? <laughs> I didn't feel like his little lab experiment, but I felt like, um, I think it was just this awareness of a way of looking at people, that like there would be motivations below actions, that that felt like something that we kind of knew in the family dialogue. And that I think not everyone knows when, you know, and of course I didn't fully understand it, but had some glimpse of at 10 or something, you know, like, um, 
that if people behave a certain way, there might be something else going on. And I think that was at times kind of confusing and also interesting. And, um, and also, and I think this is also true because, um, the idea that symptoms like that you could have a irrational fear of something and it wouldn't be real. There would be something else underneath it. And the, the story I've told before just is that I had like this incredible fear of thunder and, and in Los Angeles, <laughs> I know, isn't that never, interesting? Never, right. It was never like, thunders. Thunders it like, never, though it did yesterday, weirdly. Yeah. And that was a bizarre fluke, but yeah, I, good point. It never thunders, but I would check the weather report every day and I was terrified of it. And, um, and I would talk to my dad a little bit, like we would just have little conversations. And at some point it was like, I was telling him about a friendship and I was sad about my friend and, and it related in some way to the thunder thing. And I felt better. And it wasn't like he was being my therapist. We were just having conversations, but there was a way that he kind of knew how to probe in a different way than I think your average Joe, you know, he knew how to kind of ask certain things. And, and who knows how much I took in at that age. I was maybe nine or 10, but I think there was some kind of miraculous awareness that a fear of thunder might not just be a fear of thunder. And I do think in some way that does affect the way I think about writing that, that when you have symbols, they are operating on different levels and that I don't even have to know what the symbols mean, but I have to kind of gravitate towards the ones that feel charged in some way with the fear of thunder. Yeah, go ahead. I think when it comes to that sort of thinking and that sort of thought process and then uh, your creative work, you know, like you were talking about with regard to symbols and understanding that while you might not under, you might not know what they mean now, there's something there later and you just have to trust in the process or, you know, I don't know if I'm articulating that as, as well as I could, but I think that a lot of writers might get stuck um, at not knowing. Do you, right. know what, do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you, you, seem yeah. to ha- you seem to have a lot of trust in your own intuition and I don't know, maybe to an, unusual, nice. maybe to an unusual degree. Would you? Agree? Uh, it's hard to know cause I'm me, but I really appreciate that. I kind of hope that that's true because I, that's like the value that I really want to emphasize in my own work or as a teacher too, to try to nurture in students. But, but yeah, I think that there's something about um, like George Saunders talks about looking for words on the page that have a charge to them and following those words. And I think there is something where you can kind of train your instinct where you can write a page and the page almost has a flatness to it where there's nothing interesting in it, but there's one sentence that you as the writer keep being drawn to looking at and to start to know that that sentence is, almost, you know, like a portal literally into where the actual story is and that the rest of the sentences were just warm up and they all can go. Like you don't have to do anything with those sentences. You don't have to revise them. They're just bad. <laughs> but that one sentence is, you know, the, that is about the um, pair of shorts that your mother bought you when you were five. Like if that one has a kind of shimmer to it, then you can sort of cut and paste that one right out and start to write on that. And I think that's where work acquires depth. I just think that's that's worked for me repeatedly is kind of training that um, sensor, I guess. Well, and the skill, I mean, the skill that you probably develop over time is is figuring out how to locate the sentence with energy, or is it just like so? Yes. Is it just like flashing at you, totally obvious? I guess it. Both. Sometimes it's really obvious, and sometimes it's not. And and the way I can tell is I'm just interested in reading it. Like sometimes when I'm reading my own work and I'm skimming it, that's a sign that. 
um, at least at that moment. I mean, maybe the next day I won't be skimming it, but skimming <laughs> is usually a sign that maybe I'm, I'm totally bored by it. But like, for example, there's a section I wrote 10 years ago that I really like, and I keep rereading it, and I'm not sure how to use it, but I really like it, and it may become a basis for an entire book, or it may be a story, but I know it has something in it. Like, I just, it's just clear in my own interest in, in rereading it, that's my clue. But you just haven't figured out how, what form it's going to take yet. Yeah, because it's a fragment. It's not a complete story. I'd have to like build other parts around it, and I might be able to do that, and I don't totally know how. So, I, yeah, I'm kind of circling it. Okay. So, uh, like high school you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I didn't answer child me. Yeah. Um, shy, nice, <laughs> you know, like tried to be friendly, but friendly and shy. Uh, you know, for a while, super shy and just kind of wandered around the classroom. I think that was in first grade. I think I wandered around the classroom. That was what they said. Um, but I liked writing, of course. It turns out to be true. And I liked singing. And um, Can you sing? I can sing, but, you know, not not anything fancy, but I can carry a tune. Did you ever, like, like, uh, like college years, like get the acoustic guitar out and write songs or anything? I did exactly that. I learned how to play guitar in the stairwell with the the metal heads in my dorm. They totally taught me how to do "Wish You Were Here" by Pink Floyd. I did the like basic part, and they did the fancy part. It was really fun. And then I wrote lots of songs, you know, sad breakup songs, happy love songs. Was, yeah, that whole thing. <laughs> so, uh, so, but like, like when you're in high school, are are you writing fiction? Like, when when's your first attempt to do that? Uh, I mean, I think I, my first attempt was in elementary school. I wrote happily in elementary school, and then I kind of stopped. And I wrote some bad poems in high school. I wrote maybe the occasional story, but not much. And I had a sudden desire to be an actress, but I was really bad at acting. Maybe that was a little bit of the L.A. influence. Did you, the take, to did you take, like, uh, did you go to, like, uh, acting school or take classes? I did one year. My senior year of high school was the best year of high school by far because I had a 10th and 11th grade were not great. And uh, senior year, I did both the choir and the play production, and and that was extremely fun. And and so I have a kind of fondness for theater people always. And and I started college as a theater major but dropped it when I realized, like, I can't act and I don't want to just do playwriting. I want to do stories. So... Okay, so that was a shift. I, yeah. I'm interested in this because, like, this is something I never did. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm a huge, you know, I'm a huge movie fan, and mm-hmm. I'm amazed by people who can act really well. Yeah, uh, me too. What was it like? You know, like why? Could, yeah. Why couldn't you do it? It's interesting to me too. I think about it because, because there's well, for one, I mean, the, the main reason I think is that um, in writing, and the same thing we were talking about earlier, where you're kind of half-focused and, and not totally focused, there's this enormous trust of the moment and just letting something happen. And I think for me, it's crucial that that happens alone because it just feels too vulnerable to try out stuff in anyone else's presence. Right. You know, I just have to know that I don't have to show it to anyone. I can just explore. It's completely private. And then I can look at it the next day and I can choose my own pacing and timing if I ever want to show it to anyone. Like, I just have total control over that um, process. And with acting, my guess, because I don't really know, I've never succeeded at acting, but my guess is a lot of that does happen in the moment with people. And that must be incredible because you get this collaborative high, but it also just seems overwhelmingly hard. Like, how do you take on a character with this other person? I mean, it just seems so different 
Well, um, I, in the I, same way with, yeah, go I, ahead. I was going to say, I was just watching uh, an interview with the uh, stars of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't know if you've seen the trailer that's been going I on. have not. Uh, I have not. i got to yeah. see it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hilarious. I haven't read these books, but. I haven't either. Do you, but, know, they, do you know they've sold 90 million copies? Oh. What the wow. fuck? I mean, wow. like, I, I really want to talk to somebody who, who understands this because it's I like know. there's a lot of bad erotica. There's a lot of erotica, yeah. period. Like, what is it about these books that is kept? Like, how did it become a thing where, like, I, I want to say, like, one out of five households in America has a copy of this book? <laughs> well, it must. And I guess apparently it has a little fairy tale feel. Like, besides the S&M stuff, then it, like, all wraps up kind of sweetly. So there's something about that combo, I think, that must be really powerful for people so yeah. it's like you get to be bad and then you get to be a princess i don't know oh my God. it's like yeah they call it they, they were calling it mommy porn i don't know if that's like a, an insult um, or what, but, you know yeah. i was the to get i mean i do have a point though like related to what we were talking about is that just thinking about and I'm, i mean i'm imagining there's a lot of sex scenes in this in this movie uh yeah i'm sure right I'm sure. But like doing the doing scenes like that and you and you have yeah. to know and you have to know the material sort of pulpy and, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it's not like super highbrow stuff, but just to just to like be on the set and have all these people looking at you and to have to like try to make that real. It's like you have to be willing to expose uh, your first draft to like a room full of people. <laughs> and- exactly. No, exactly. And it's unbelievably vulnerable, must be powerfully intimate when it works. Um I mean, it seems, yeah. And when I've talked to her, I have a close friend who's an actress, and she has said, well, she feels like it's easier because you hide behind the line someone else wrote, so you're a character. So you always have that as a fallback. And she was like, writing is scarier because it's your voice. But I still felt like hers was way scarier. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess different strokes. But, um, yeah. you know, it's interesting that, uh, that you say that, though, about your friend, because uh, I'm always amazed when – like you watch like award shows or you watch any situation where it's not scripted um, and you see these like professional performers and you're like, man, they can't get it together. Like these people seem like so ultra composed and in control when they're on the screen. And then you take them off script. And I mean, Hey, it's an emotional moment and they're human beings, but um, it just always kind of throws me when you see some, some great actor up there fumbling. You're like, what? You're supposed to be able to do this. You know? <laughs> like, right. But then there's someone like Colin first, who I can't remember what he said, but like said a speech that was so gracious and beautifully constructed and like grammatically eloquent. And I just felt like, Oh God, you know, he is like, then I also felt like, God, he can also do that. Like <laughs> right, right. he can act and he can make now, a speech. See, so I, want, I sort of, I sort of expect my great actors to be able to do that. Like I want yeah. them, I want them yeah. to be like fully on at all times. Like you're yeah. performing for me, but yeah. Yeah. I think we all want that kind of. So yeah. where, where did you go off to college? Did you leave Los Angeles? I went to UC San Diego. I kind of, the idea was to apply to the UC system because it was good school system and it was, you know, good prices. And it was just like, this is such a great situation. I have two sisters. We should all kind of, you know, take part in the UC system unless we could, you know, there was some particular reason for it to go to some other school. So I think my choices were UCSD or UC Santa Cruz and I picked UCSD. Well, you should have gone to Santa Cruz. They don't even have grades, right? I know. I mean, Santa Cruz would have been in some ways a better fit. UCSD was a weird fit for me. Why? Um, I think it was because of San Diego, actually. I don't love San Diego. And San Diego is conservative. It's beautiful. So, like, the beauty was incredible. Right. And the campus is right 
pretty much on the water and and that was incredible but but I don't think I I lived in San Francisco after and it was like within a day I realized what I had been longing for which was just some kind of urban sense and there are parts of San Diego that have that but they were really just starting to develop at that that was this was in the late 80s and the early 90s and there just was um I don't know like it, it just didn't feel it you didn't feel this kind of palpable urban energy that I think uh, it's very helpful to me. Yeah. So I think that's probably, that's largely why. I mean, it, and also I was in the math science school by accident because I checked the wrong box and it turned out it's hard to change. Wait, so that's what? Why I was, you, you, went yeah, like the, the, you went to the math science school? I did. I was, I went, they have five, they had at that point five mini colleges within the college and they each had a different um, kind of, you know, ideology behind the GEs and all this stuff. And so I had accidentally checked the box that was the math science school. So, and then I was like, of course, I'll just switch. And they were like, it takes two years. It's this whole process. You have to write a thing. So at that point I was already enrolled in these various classes. So I just took them, but it meant that's why in the stairwell, I was with all these, these heavy metal guys that were all (laughs) like super science chemistry guys that were all really smart and had mullets and they were super sweet and they were great at guitar. Well, okay. So, but you finished, you got, I mean, you were able to do it. Like that could be for, for a, for a lesser mind, like, you know, somebody who's really like writer brained, that could be a complete disaster, but you were actually able to function academically. I did. I functioned academically. I said physics was the hardest, um, but I liked some of the math. And, and the other thing I think about with writing is that I actually have trouble and I've gotten a lot better, but at that time I, I don't, I have not been that great at writing papers. And so um, actually like English classes, you would think someone who's a writer would excel in English classes, but I did not. I did better in certain math classes than English classes. Wow. Okay. So like, was it in any way like a happy accident in terms of your writing career? Like, do you feel like the education that you accidentally got, uh, like somehow like informed your approach? I mean, it must have somehow, but. I guess right. It must have somehow. Yeah. It's hard to know, but, but I think it's possible. I mean, I think it's possible because I've talked to a, you know more than a handful of writers who have kind of like that math brain approach to their work, and and it's often story writers, you know, people who are really well yeah. known for stories because there's such a, I mean, I guess it could it, it can be that way for novels too, but when you think of stories, there's like it's like a formula. There's so much compression, and it's like it's gotta it can only kind of work one way. It seems like whereas novels, there's a little bit more wiggle. Um, do you know what I'm saying? I don't. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, I think with novels, there is a lot more room, but in it. I mean, I guess I think the way I'll think of it, too, is that stories have a kind of um, well, I mean, it was novels, too. But there's there is an internal logic that sentences need to have. And that internal logic is not like math, but it's it's not math. But in some ways, it's a little bit like math and that you're progressing something in a certain way. And it's so it's it's not completely other than you know like i think i always thought of it as the opposite and i don't think it's the opposite right right and so were you when you were taking these classes and you're um you know singing pink floyd <laughs> right in your spare time were, were, <laughs> were you starting to try your hand again like was this when you started to kind of get back into fiction yeah i mean what i did is since i started as a theater major i did take a playwriting class and felt uh, really enjoyed it. And my college boyfriend was an actor. And so he was all involved with the theater program. And so I was doing playwriting. And so that was like this fun world that I was kind of involved in in various ways. So, so I did, they put on plays by undergrads. And so I had a couple plays put on and that was really fun. So that was basically what I was doing. And then the truth was that 
I felt like all my plays were like long monologues about um, the character's internal life. So it just seemed clear that playwriting was not quite a good match because right. they weren't really functioning as plays. So then I started to take fiction classes and I switched to a lit major where you could do creative writing classes. And, and that was just like the most fun thing in the world. I just loved it so much. Um, and, and then I really was having fun writing stories, but I, it was still hard for me to kind of admit that that's something I wanted to take seriously. Why? Just like, because it seems outlandish to try to pursue or. Yeah. And I think I, one of my sisters is a fiction writer and I think I felt like it was just her territory and I felt, um, it was just hard to kind of admit that I also liked it. It just was one of those, um, I mean, I think it often happens in families, right? Where you, you kind of think of someone as kind of inhabiting that role and she was the fiction writer and I didn't know what I was. I was kind of the unknown. And so, um, so I think some of that was just me thinking, Oh, well, I guess I like it too. Wow. And I think it's often true that writers run in families. So it's not uncommon to find siblings who also write. Well, yeah, but, it's, it's happening. I mean, and, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like it's happening. Like there are families that produce writers, like the, the sons and daughters of writers go on to become writers. Like you obviously, exactly. see, you see it happening. In, like I was thinking about this uh, just recently, like with the sons and daughters of acting or actors in Hollywood and the nepotism and, yeah. uh, or, you know what I was, maybe it was the, cause Dakota Johnson, the 50 shades of gray star is like the son or the daughter of uh, Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith. And oh, really? Yeah, and like Mel, oh, Mel, Melanie Griffith is like the, you know, she's like the daughter of an actress and I, it's probably, it's someone famous too. Yeah. I'm forgetting the lineage, but my, my point is that like, I was thinking about it to myself and I was like, well, God, like, yeah, that's kind of gross. Like how it just, but then again, it's like, it's the family business and like, right. you get, right. you get like wildly overpaid to like yeah, do, to, to do something fun and like everyone loves you. Like, why wouldn't you do it? You know? And yeah, um, yeah. I guess that, I mean, the same thing could feasibly happen in writing. If you're like the daughter of the lady who wrote 50 shades of gray. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess like that, but it's such a smaller sphere. Right, you know, the stakes right. are so much lower. Yeah. So, yeah. so when you decided like, I'm going to try my hand at this too, did your sister bristle? But it was like we kind of had to re-meet each other in this new territory. So I think it took both of us a little time to adjust because it just felt like kind of a surprise that I was I was interested too. So it, it, it took a little time, but it also so interesting now because she, she writes fiction and she teaches and, and we share this vocabulary. So it's it ends up also feeling like kind of a, a nice, um, territory to share that you don't even expect in a family that I could sit down and be like, Oh, are you, you know, what did you hear about AWP or you know, like yeah, something right. that's just very <laughs> like job yes. related stuff. And then we can sit and chat about that. I so can't, I can't even imagine that. Like I have nobody in my family extended, you know, immediate or extended who I like, there's just, there's no shorthand anywhere. Like it's always like a, yeah. a laborious process of explanation. Like, and it'll be, it'll be interesting with your kid to see. I mean, it, you know, she may have not, but you never know where it's going to show up again. <sighs> I think it, yeah. I guess I'd be, I mean, you know, you have to support your kids. I'd be, I mean, knowing how hard it is, I, I'd be like a little like wary, like, oh God, you know, but you gotta, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you gotta let yeah. them, let them go do their Yeah. Thing. Right. No, you got, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, and, and did you, like, were you, um, I guess it, it seems like you guys have hit a good equilibrium. There's not any like weird competition or feelings of competitiveness because 
I know that can drive like not only with regard to like having siblings who are also writers, but just like, you know, amongst other writers who are colleagues or who are just out there, like some writers really seem to be driven by a sense of competition. They keep up with like who's doing what. I don't know. I don't know if they'd admit to it as much because it's not, I don't know. I feel like it can be something that's sort of subterranean a lot of the time, but some some people are really like just inherently competitive. Like, do you have any of that? Some of that, I mean, I think, but it's, I guess I think there's like a couple, couple routes with competition. There's the, there's the destructive competition where you are kind of like, it, it makes you feel sort of bad and you're kind of like, what are these other people doing and do I measure up? And, and that part, I think, um, I try not to kind of go down that road because that just feels painful, but, but I think. I think there's a nice competition where you're like, oh, man, that person did that thing, and I really admire it, and now, you know, it makes you want to up your game. Like, I kind of like that. I kind of like that feeling of like, look what they did that I, you know, I want to try to, you know, it's sort of like a sports competition where you're like, I want to play this really talented person, even though I'm terrible at sports. But um, so I think there's there's some of that. And, And with my sister, I think there's, at this point, it's also like we just... I kind of, you know, we'll, we'll, our stuff will be separate and then we'll read it when it's published and it's kind of a pleasure to read what she's doing and, and there's a nice support. But I think that separateness has helped in terms of, um, I don't know, not getting in, into each other's business too much, like allowing there to be that space. You know, we're not each other's first reader. And I think I think that's important. I think then it could get kind of tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's got, yeah. You know, I can't even so it's imagine like, yeah, me too. Or it's like couples where they're two writers. I think some couples can really pull that off, and and I think it's hard. Yeah, I, I feel like yeah. I don't know. I mean, personally, I don't know how how I would do that, but yeah, some people can, some people can manage it. So I know. Yeah. Um, so okay. So to trace the timeline some more, you're in college. Sure. You you switch to <laughs> lit. You start to write. You feel like you find you kind of found your tribe. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's true. And then you get out of college and what? You moved to San Francisco? Yeah, good memory. Yeah, I moved to San Francisco. My other sister's there. I wanted to move somewhere where I knew someone. And um, I taught elementary school for a few years at a performing arts uh, school, private school. That was extremely fun. And I, you know, kept sort of signing up for classes. So I took a class at San Francisco State. I took a class at Berkeley Extension. I kind of kept missing writing, and so I just was doing it kind of constantly, but not a lot of output. It was just sort of a constant presence. I was I was also a tremendously anxious time where I felt like I don't know what to do outside of college. Um, it was a time of I think a lot of growth, but it was really hard. That post college time. It's an like awful. A lot of, it's an awful time. Like, it's an awful time. Nobody it's tells you. Time. Nobody tells you that. It's like, oh, you're going to go to college and you're going to transition. <laughs> it's like, I, it's the worst. Like I always say, it like is. I was, you know, everyone always talks about adolescence and junior high. It's so awkward. Uh, I would take eighth grade over mm. like twenty two, twenty three mm. any day. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like eighth grade. You kind of, I mean, I felt like sort of out of it in eighth grade and and in high school, like kind of spacey. And I think in my twenties, the the good thing is that I felt more present, but I was like flooded with anxiety. And it was my students. I'll see them because they'll be like, "Oh my god, I'm graduating. What do I do?" And they all want to go to grad school immediately, which I think is a mistake generally, um, unless they're Why? really. Uh, because I just think you need time to grow as a person. And then you go to grad school and it's like this incredible gift. 
But if you go right, it's often used as an anxiety plug, and I just think that's a bad reason to get an MFA of all things, right? Right. Wildly impractical degree as an anxiety plug. It just, like... just here, take on sixty thousand dollars in student debt. <laughs> just calm down, you'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, and then it just delays the question for two years, and then you have the debt, and then you don't get to have this plum of an experience, which maybe in three, four, ten years, you might reap from in this incredibly rich way. And there are exceptions. There are occasional students that I think are so advanced that it's just the right time, but they're rare. So, okay, so you you went to San Francisco and got anxious. Like, how anxious are we talking? Like, were you ever like, like, can't get out of bed, like riddled with anxiety? Or was it just kind of like, you know, you were carrying it around with you? I've had about, I've had at various stages in my life, I can sort of point in my mind to different ones. Yeah, like, like paralyzing anxiety. Like, I think there was a point in San Francisco where I just couldn't, I had so much trouble sleeping for, there was like a very concentrated period of time where I was just couldn't, I just would get in this kind of cycle of thinking and I couldn't loop out of it. And, um, just call your dad, just be like, dad, help me. Right. I mean, I, I have had a lot of therapy and it's been enormously helpful, but it's, but it's, yeah. So there were points in San Francisco where it was really, it was really bad, but therapy was super helpful. So, like what, yeah. what, what did you learn from it? I mean, just like, so I, mm. I mean, like, you know, like, did you just learn <laughs> strategies of coping? Like, no, I mean, I think there are different kinds of therapy, right? So there's, there's like a more CBT cognitive behavioral, which is more about strategies, but I don't believe in that so much because I think you want to get below that. Like if someone tells me to just think positive, I want to kill them. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> it's, I find that so unhelpful. Like the whole, like, just, you know, try to, be calm or whatever. It's like when I'm walking down the street when I'm kind of stewing over something and someone is like, smile. And I just feel like, yeah, fuck <laughs> there's, you. Yeah there's, nothing, yeah, there's nothing worse than someone telling you to smile. Like, what? It's like, why? Yeah. Why is that useful? Um, which as an aside, I once did a happiness panel at USC where I teach and, and one of the people was, was, one of the students was like, you seem happy. I want you to be on the happiness panel. And I said, okay, I think it's hilarious, but you think I want, you know, like I'm full of doubt and you know, whatever, but sure I'll be on the happiness panel. But there was one woman who was like, if you smile, I mean, I guess this is true, but like it, it lets your physiological face know to relax and so it's good to do even when you're feeling bad and she was so tense the woman who said it was just so tense that it just felt like yeah that does not relax me at all yeah no i've heard um, i've heard that line like that like you don't smile if you don't necessarily only sh- smile because you're happy like if you smile it actually like releases it causes some sort of like neurochemical thing that makes you happy right and you know maybe at a really dark moment that's useful but it feels like it also feels so um uh, so unnatural so unnatural and something about it like feels like it denies the pain a little bit um but okay so but so so the the kind of therapy that i think has been helpful for is this is a lot like the writing process which is you just wander around and talk about stuff and the therapist you know ask questions and you kind of find emotional places and pockets that you talk about and things get released and you don't know how or why something has changed inside you because the cause and effect is not directly clear so we were talking about all sorts of things that were, you know, the whole range of, of worries and fears and, 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 da, 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 and, um, and things you probably can spot and find in my work in various ways, but also indirectly. Um, and anyway, so that it's just some of the anxiety abated from that. And I think, um, with that, one of the things that came from it was, um, 
I could allow myself the desire to get an MFA. I couldn't say I wanted to be a writer, but I could say I really want an MFA. And before that, I probably couldn't have said that. I think it felt too charged still in some way. But I felt like, okay, I want to go get an MFA, and I feel really excited about that. And and that was maybe the first time I really took ownership of my own education because until then, through college, I think I had sort of passively been just going and, you know, showing up. And ticking but the, never, t- checking the wrong boxes. <laughs> checking the wrong boxes, exactly. And then never changing and being like, okay, I'll just take these classes and just being, you know, very much on the conveyor belt of a kind of middle-class educational, you know, kid in a city. And, and this was the first time that I was like, this is what I want. And I don't know if I want to be a writer, but I want this degree. And, and that was a, that was a big shift for me. And so you went, you went to UCI? I went to UCI. I like is, got myself is... in and I didn't get in. And then I went to ask if I should defer and she was able to like make a space for me. It was this incredible, it was just like the whole, a certain passivity had really shifted and I, yeah. Okay. So wait, so California Irvine, great. It's a great uh, MFA program. It's produced a lot of notable, uh, was it Michael Shabin, Joshua Ferris, you, is that, am I getting Richard right? Ford, Danzy Senna, Alice Siebold, Glenn David Gold. Yes, yes, yes. So there's a lot of, you know, they've churned out a lot of really uh, notable writers. And so you did not get in initially? I didn't. I mean, this is an, actually the program. One of the women who runs the program says, you just have to be careful when telling the story because everyone then comes down and says, I, I read that thing that Amy Bender said, so I just want to see if there's a possibility of adding a space. But basically what happened was uh, they said, you're, on, you're a finalist. You're not on the wait list, but you're a finalist. And I just really wanted to go there because everyone got funding and it was small and it was the only program that I knew of that was like that. Um, and there are others, of course, but I, they hadn't kind of registered on my radar yet. And so I went down to see if I should defer and reapply the following year because I thought it'd be worth waiting. And this was about three, four years out of college. And and the woman who was the interim director, uh, Tom Keneally, was leaving, and she was Judith Grossman. She was, and she just had like a wonderfully eclectic, eccentric sense sensibility. And I had brought new stories, and I said, you know, do you think I should defer? And she said, let me see the new stories. And she said, do you like teaching? And I had just spent years teaching, and I was really excited about teaching. And I said, yeah, how come? And she said, because someone had dropped out the previous year because they couldn't handle the teaching load. And I said, well, for sure, I would want to do teaching. And I thought this was all, again, just to see about reapplying. And she said, well, I'll see what I can do. You know, she read the stories, and she said, I'm going to see if I can make an extra space because wow. we have this space from this dropout from last year. And the rest we just is, want to make sure. The rest is history. Up. Yeah, I mean, it really was huge. And it was, I mean, I think what's nice about telling you the bit of the therapy piece is that even though I know it's fairly abstract, it was this turning point in my character really where I felt like I could try for something I just had never done anything like that before in my life where I went down and like talked to someone about the possibility like I just wasn't a go-getter like that I was shy and I was tended to just sort of go with the flow and and not assert myself well but so the see, fact that it yeah well but I mean I, I like I think that there's something to this because like I've worked in academia I've seen what like in England and, I, and I've been in academia as a student so I've seen it from both sides yeah. but like you know, your typical English department or creative writing department office at any university tends to be like uh, kind of a disorganized, like very mm. busy place. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and that might be putting it kindly in terms of some schools. Um, yeah, right. And, you true. know, like these places are just they're, they're harried. And so I think there's something to showing up in person. Like you went down, yeah. you went down there. 
like unannounced or did you make an appointment? Yeah, no. Well, I called her and found out her office hours. I think I may have asked and she, you know, was probably noncommittal. And then you just showed up. I just showed up wearing a little dress. There you go. <laughs> you know, like I remember trying to like dress up and look professional and very nervous. Um, and it was just something my parents had asked of me my whole life to be like, why don't you go talk to that teacher? Why don't you go ask that person? And it always felt enormously burdensome that they would ask that. And like, I don't want to do that. Why would I do that? I don't want to, you know, that kind of feeling of like, I can't, no, 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 no. And so it really felt like the first time I thought, you know what? And they didn't say it. Like it came from me to think, I'm going to try. I'm just going to see what's going to happen. I wasn't in any way expecting that I would attend there that year, but I thought it was worth meeting her and talking to her and, so, you know, I feel also this incredible gratitude towards her because she she changed my life in a huge yeah. way. Yeah, those yeah. moments, those are that's yeah. like that's inspiring. So, did you did you uh, do you feel like the time that you spent there helped you to refine like the track that you were already on or do you feel like the the instruction that you got there um like without it you would not be published or the writer that you are today. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there, like there's some indecision in me about what writing mm -hmm. schools can do for people. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, I think it depends. And I think I had wonderful teachers and it was a great, she picked this really wonderful eclectic class. So I felt like that was really helpful because they were very supportive of a kind of magical bent in my writing. And I didn't know that. So there were, Absolutely, there were factors that pushed me in a direction that was really helpful, but it was the chemistry of the group and the teacher and the student is unpredictable. So I don't think it's going to work for everyone. And I would also say, like, if my life at that point had been kind of in this wandery, unsure space, it was really the first time in my life that I felt motivated and focused. And so that was a huge piece, too, because I started writing every day and I just like threw myself in. So I got a ton of work done and I was just like a sponge absorbing things. But I just had never done that before. Like I really could hardly tell you anything I learned in college. I hate to say that, but it's kind of true. And I could tell you, you know, almost everything I learned in grad school. It's just seared in my mind. So what it's did you just, what did you work on while you were there? I worked on the girl in the flammable skirt. OK, so that was that was like your thesis or whatever. Yeah. Wow. OK, well, that worked out well for you. Yeah, I mean, I wrote like 12, 13 stories, and and I began the novel that became An Invisible Sign of My Own. I got about a third of that done within the first couple of years, so I just wrote a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and you were hanging out in Irvine, just like, I mean, it's kind of a weird aesthetic down there, you know? Like, yeah. It's not like, a, and it's not like a literary aesthetic, but it, it's a comfortable place to live and write. I mean, it, you know, it's not terrible, but it's kind of like that manicured sort of like design neighborhood kind of thing yeah. going on, you know? Totally. I mean, it's really, yeah, it's not literary at all. It's kind of very, um, yeah, I mean, it just feels very clipped and kind of... Um, cookie cutter, I guess that's the term. And, but, but beautiful. Also, it reminded me of San Diego in that way, like also very beautiful ocean. Um, but I think you just then get this sort of shaggy group of writers and it doesn't matter. It's right. like, you just then go, you find the one, we found the one dive bar in Costa Mesa. This one poet <laughs> found it and that's where everyone went. Of course. And the, the poet found it, the dive bar. That's his the job. The poet found the dive bar and then bless his heart, Jeff Lytle, such a great guy. And he also wrote a poem to Nike town. <laughs> Because the new Nike town came in and like he read it at a reading and it just felt like so fresh and alive. It was just, a, it was a wonderful time. Wow. So, and now, you know, uh, several books published, um, and published well, like you've done, you know, you've done well and now, and you've got a, uh, a job teaching, uh, and you've got 
kids? Like you got everything going on. It's been it's like I've been in stages, but things yeah, at the moment things are in a good place. Like I could you know, there's there's conflicts and complexities to each of those things, but but they're clicking in a good way right now, which is really nice. And you like the teaching as a uh, I mean, yeah, you know, you do it uh, to make a living, but you also do it. Um, I don't know. You, I think you get something from teaching that it yeah, feed, I, feeds your work, or at least some of us do. Or it feeds the, my social self, you know, writing solitary. And I think my, my, I, I like people. I like to hang out with people. And te- I would be lonely if I was writing all day long. I mean, I'm married, but like still he has to go to work. And like I, you know, so it's, it's, I think teaching is really helpful as a counter to the, to the writer, the more introverted space that writing comes from. And have you ever, I mean, you talk about like the playfulness um, that you strive for in your own work, like getting into that particular headspace and um, allowing yourself the, the kind of freedom that you need, you know, freedom from your own mind and being too critical too early or whatever mm-hmm. um, so that you can get words on the page and you can set the stage for what it will eventually become, you know, your refined art or whatever. Um, have you ever found in your teaching life that you've found a student who uh, was maybe locked up in that way and mm-hmm. you, you've been able to like really, ha- like you've seen it, like they've opened up and like, yeah. the magic has happened. Like you've ever had? Yeah. That? Yeah. Actually a lot. Um, yeah. Because, because I think it's so, there's so much baggage people carry around about what they're supposed to do as a writer. I mean, that's where the writing exercise becomes this incredible tool. So if I have everyone sitting around a table and I just am throwing at them words that they have to incorporate into their story and then we read it aloud their students will be like, oh, I had fun writing this, or this didn't feel pressured, or it didn't feel like I had to put in big themes, you know, like the student who's like, I'd like to write about mortality, or something like that, and you're like, well, maybe you should write about, like, a a noun that is, like, a thing you could flesh out, you know, something that has a sensory presence on the page, as opposed to mortality, which is a little bit heavy, as an idea, like, how to get them away from idea and into the sensory world, and I think an exercise will do that, and yeah, people loosen up left and right, and I think that experience of seeing your work flow out of you and surprise you is addictive. Like I think once you have that, you kind of want to get back to that place and do whatever you can to, to kind of cultivate that writing space. Yeah. It's such a weird, it's like this weird thing where like, you know, you just want it to be done when you're working on something, mm-hmm. or at least I have that feeling like, Oh, I just want to mm-hmm. get it. I want to get it out of me. I want to get it out of me. And then mm-hmm. as soon as it's done, I'm like almost instantly sad and nostalgic for like, Oh, it was so fun when it was in the middle. I was in the middle of it. So interesting. <laughs> yeah. Right. Ugh, strange, but That's right. It, it's, it, it sounds to me like you're the ideal creative writing teacher because you have this kind of like familial background where you're sort of like, you've got a little bit of a psychology <laughs> thing happening, the dance, like it's a, you're like the perfect writing teacher. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's, I really like it. I think it's, you know, it's a great job. It's super fun. It's fun to get to see what people do. And, and I like students. So yeah, I mean, I, I do enjoy that dialogue with the students and seeing what they come up with. And there are a lot of amazing writers that I've taught, like just really tremendously talented people. Hmm. Well, I'm, uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I'm not going to ask you what you're working on now. We've, we've, okay, we've already, good. Yeah, good. Cause I'm it's, not, right. not who go knows? There. I don't no. really know. <laughs> I'm not going to go there, um, but it's been such a pleasure. I appreciate the oh, time. Congrats on the twins, and I will look forward to whatever uh, whatever you do next. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, too. It was super fun. All right, guys, there you go. Episode 300 in the books. That's Amy Bender. You can find her online at flammableskirt.com. She's also on the Twitter 
Her handle over there is at Amy Bender, and you can find her on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the uh, Other People app, the free app, the official app of this program. Uh, it's available wherever apps are available. You get it, you download it to your device, and then you can uh, listen to the most 50 recent the most recent 50 episodes of this show are then available for free right there on the app and new episodes automatically upload to the app so you don't have to do anything it's the easiest way and the best way to listen and then if you want to sign up for premium and stream uh, all 300 episodes you can do that right there within the app it's very cheap two bucks a month five bucks for six months etc nine dollars for a full year so go get the app i would appreciate it sign up for premium and uh, that was fun Great talking with Amy. Three years. It's gone fast. 300 episodes. It seems like a lot to me. <laughs> Possibly too much. And uh, it would take a long time. It occurs to me that it would take a long time to listen to 300 episodes of this or any program. Uh, an hour an hour in length and change. Uh, I have no idea what these 300 episodes say about me. Uh, I'm kind of scared to guess. You know, like when you think about it in totality... Whatever they do say, I have to imagine that it's probably mostly true. Because if you do this long enough, if you sit here and you talk into a microphone like this and you have conversations like this on the record for 300 episodes, you're bound to expose yourself. So, this is me. This is uh, my psychologically naked self. <laughs> uh, which I have presented to you, for better or for worse. Is it for better? Is it for worse? Uh, please don't answer that. Please remember that Balzac was 5 feet 2 and that Keats was less than 5 feet 1. That's it for now. Great thanks again to Amy Bender. Go get her books. Go get all of her books. Uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I'll be back again soon with episode 301. This is still going. Uh, it's still happening. I'm still doing this. You're still doing this. We are still doing this. Uh, what are we doing? What are we doing?